your meddling in continental affairs and trying to make yourselves a great military power instead of attending to the sea and commerce will yet be your ruin as a nation. You were greatly offended with me for having called you a nation of shopkeepers. Had I meant by this that you are a nation of cowards, you would have had reason to be displeased. Even though it were ridiculous and contrary to historical facts, but no such thing was ever intended. I meant that you were a nation of merchants and that all your great riches and your grand resources arose from commerce, which is true. What else constitutes the riches of England? It is not extensive territory or a numerous population. It is not mines of gold, silver or diamonds. Moreover, no man of sense ought to be ashamed of being called a shopkeeper. But your prince and your ministers appear to wish to change altogether the spirit of the English and to render you another nation, to make you ashamed of your shops and your trade, which have made you what you are, and to sigh after nobility, titles and crosses. In fact, to assimilate you with the French. You are all nobility now, instead of the plain old English men. Close quotes. Napoleon Bonaparte on St. Helena. Part 1. Introduction. For the vast majority of people, for the vast majority of its history, the island of Great Britain has been a pretty good place to live. Compare Britain to the rest of the world and it's not been a bad old place. Governments have always had trouble imposing tyranny. The market economy has been promoted over almost any other ideology. The individual has been promoted over the collective. And the levels of wealth on the island have long surpassed comparative continental countries. Admittedly, it has not all been plain sailing. The world wars were hard, but much easier than a comparative experience in France or Germany. The original industrialisation of the island was a process far more brutal in Britain than in continental Europe. But above all, the island has given a good life to most who have lived on it. In fact, Rather than nationality, rural, urban, or race, the main divide on the island hasn't changed since Norman times. Britain has had a major class divide, which it still struggles with today. No amount of welfare or technology has ever changed this divide that lives on the island. In some ways, it's a marker of success. A high degree of wealth has meant there had been few bread riots or outright rebellions. A small island with good transport connections has meant the rural areas are as rich, if not richer, than the cities. Something unique compared to much of the rest of the world. It was the process of industrialisation which changed the island 
like nothing had changed the world since farming was introduced. Britain had been the originator of many of these new technologies, and it was the largest single transformation ever to have taken place on the island. The dark satanic mills that popped up in the late 18th century changed Britain drastically. Though the process of industrialization can be seen as having been underway for some centuries before. The move from agrarian to pre-industrial economy happened in the 12th century, which saw woodlands of the island chopped down for wood and later charcoal. However, the island, despite innumerable problems over the centuries before industrialization, had never quite become one unified political polity. The kingdoms of England and Scotland together with the Principality of Wales, and later the Kingdom of Ireland, formed together slowly over a millennia to form what we now call the United Kingdom. It was England and Scotland which first got together, forming the Kingdom of Great Britain, with Wales having been formally annexed by England in the 16th century. When Ireland joined the Union, making the entire archipelago one political entity, it resulted in the name changing to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, a pure political invention to solve problems at home and abroad. You might think this episode is a bit of a stretch, because this is an episode on inventions, not on countries. But like our episode on the United States, I argue that the United Kingdom was a deliberate invention and as worthy to be on the list as the telegraph, the steam engine. And it is, as an invention, a greater invention, in my opinion, than the United States. The United Kingdom was invented because of at least a two millennia old problem. The island of Great Britain was utterly unconquerable. England was almost unconquerable from the continent, something that was achieved only twice, first by the Romans and then by the Normans. Wales had been conquered only twice, partially by the Romans and then in piecemeal fashion by the Anglo-Normans and completed by the Tudors. While Scotland, well Scotland to this day has never truly been conquered. Meanwhile, Ireland, well, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, that's a whole story in and of itself. The island of Great Britain has been thought of as very homogenous over its history. Yet this belies a real fact. Internal migration has always been big in Britain and Ireland. Such as the Irish moving to England or rural workers moving to the city. Yet even this hides a fact that Britain has always been something of a global migration hub. In years gone past, this was as much emigration as the rapid population build-up on the islands was solved by mass migration to the colonies of the Crown. Yet in recent years, this has changed, allowing the United Kingdom to be a more immigration-friendly country. There has always been periods of migration. The Anglo-Saxons, Danes, 
Norsemen, Normans and the Huguenots all came to England for various reasons, but were all accepted into wider society and more quickly and easier than elsewhere, due to their respect for the English or British market economy. This market economy has had an ability to integrate newcomers onto the island more than any government policy or proclamation. Divisions throughout history, like the Anglo-Saxons, Danes, Normans, Scots, or later European immigration, and today immigration from across the world, has largely settled peacefully into this market economy. The law of easy living in a prosperous island is in truth a more powerful force than any other on the island. Despite, or perhaps because of the strength of the market economy, no great power, even those on the island themselves, could get political unification of the land. The Celts, who were perhaps slightly more advanced than we were told, never managed that one crucial development, political centralisation and the unity to fight the coming of the Romans. When the Romans came, they tried to unify the island, but famously failed in any invasion attempts of Scotland, later building Hadrian's Wall to mark the trading border. Later, the Normans would push further and further north, but could never beat the Scots. The Normans had had a hard enough time subduing the north of England, for Scotland to be too much of a law. For centuries in the medieval and early modern period, English armies tried and failed to conquer Scotland. So how do you solve a problem like the British? You have to appeal to the one thing that the island has in common. Appeal to the people's common sense and general pragmatism. An artificial construct, the United Kingdom was invented to join together the island in a political union that otherwise could not have existed. Neither side could conquer the other, and so something had to be done. The result was a political union of England and Scotland, with the legal fiction of equality within the union. For this invention we have a clear date, the 1st of May, 1707. So, this episode is very straightforward, but as you have probably worked out, quite long. In it, we will talk about how the United Kingdom was formed, why it was important, and how it impacted on the world. So we all know what the United Kingdom is, don't we? Well, I don't think many people actually do. Even the people who live in the United Kingdom don't really know the story of how they came to live in the political polity they actually live in. Unlike the United States, the story of the United Kingdom is never taught with the same gusto and verve. Yet it's a fascinating story, almost as long as the story of the people on the island itself. Yet what of the island itself? What were its unique characteristics compared to the European continent? Well, one word, and it's a word that's picked up relatively unpopular political connotations. Diversity. 
Diversity in the traditional sense of the word has been key to the United Kingdom's success over the centuries. The island of Great Britain had long been one of the wealthier parts of Europe on a per capita basis, a result of its low population and naturally diverse wealth meant that it was seen as a relatively rich place. Geographically, there is no one style to the island. It has a northern French or even Dutch style breadbasket in East Anglia. It has mining regions dotted across the island. It has moorlands, highlands, rivers and streams. On a continental landmass, that's Eurasia, famous for an east-west axis, the United Kingdom has a north-south axis. Meanwhile, the geology of the island, having been formed in numerous periods, is highly diverse, giving it a huge abundance of materials under the land. The island status has also given it a distance from the madness that occasionally raged across the narrow Channel Sea. While the sea itself was a hugely beneficial resource, with things like fisheries and later oil reserves, all benefiting the people of Britain. Despite this, geography is in destiny. It was in the mid to late 18th century when the island, predominantly in the north of England and then rapidly spreading, used these diverse and abundant materials, including coal, to become the first place to industrialise. So this makes the United Kingdom not an invention like the steam engine, but an invented idea. And we do have many software inventions on the show. Softwares that enable the hardwares and provide a sort of feedback loop without which innovation could not and would not take place. Philosophies, theories and models have to be developed to allow physical products to be invented and improved so we can all use them. And it was the daddy of all human progress, the Industrial Revolution, which first took place in Britain centuries ago, which makes the United Kingdom have its place on this list. I'm not somebody who wishes to live back in the Industrial Era, never mind how much I like steam locomotives and canals. But it is perhaps the central story of the United Kingdom in the world. The French have the French Revolution, the Americans have their Revolutionary War, the Russians have the Russian Revolution, and the Germans, well, they've got that 30-year period between 1914 and 1945 when they all went a bit crazy. Yet, for the 200 years that followed the Union in 1707, the United Kingdom went through a period of transformation never seen before in human history. The coming together of various technologies allowed the British peoples far more power per capita over the world than had ever been seen before. One Brit ruled over two million Indians in the British Raj, in the empire that followed industrialisation. The new technologies allowed the Royal Navy to become more dominant than any navy before it. A great start for an island nation. Britannia began ruling the waves, and with this naval power, it changed most of the world. Britain brought home foreign ideas, 
allowed its technologies to be exported to new territories for a tidy profit, and spread its power across the world in a far more peaceful way than any global empire before it. Not that there weren't bad incidents, or bad peoples, or bad decisions along the way. And whether the British Empire and the result of British economic domination was an overall good or bad for the world is a debatable subject. But the United Kingdom has perhaps had more impact on more people than any other political party in history. And, like we always do, we will, at the end of the episode, have a small talk on the future of this invention. How will the future of the United Kingdom go outside the European Union? Is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? For Britain to succeed, like any country economically, it needs to have a natural diversity in its economic output. This manifests itself in diversity in its regions, peoples, ideas and its politics. Historically, Britain has had natural diversity in abundance. I do have much dislike for the modern use of the word diversity. It has been overused and misused, but historically speaking, the diversity found on Britain from the Scots, the Welsh, the Southerners, the Cornish, the Northerners and any other region you might suggest has given it a historic strength in its ability to specialise and diversify in many different areas. All of these came together to form the United Kingdom. So what was the legacy of the United Kingdom? Well I would argue its industrial revolution was the most famous. But more broadly the United Kingdom has had a longer lasting and more global impact upon the entire species of man than any political power before it. No South American, African or Asian country was impacted particularly by the Roman Empire. Europe wasn't impacted by dynastical changes in China. But the United Kingdom's role, more than its politics and its technology and culture, took over the world. British-style railways and commerce, politics and language, culture and sport were taken to places all across the planet. The importance of football to South America, cricket to India, rugby to Polynesian culture is all down to British influence. The empire, which started in Ireland in the 16th century, then spreading to Bermuda and North America, quickly spread across the world to Australia, New Zealand, Africa and India. It officially ended in 1997 with the handover of Hong Kong to China, but the writing for the empire had been on the cards for decades before. Over the course of the 20th century, the United Kingdom's position of world leader was passed to the United States, a creation itself born of and in the spirit of British ideals, which to me further underlines the importance of this invention. So where do we start in our story of Britain and the United Kingdom? Well, I want to go through an overview of how the United Kingdom came to be formed before we get into things like industrialization in more depth. 
The island had been populated for millennia, and due to its isolation, there was a slow coming together of peoples in Celtic times. But nothing official, and what political policies there were, were small and transitory. The island was settled over the centuries, as various places across Europe dealt with overpopulation by migration around the continent. There was little known resistance to these new migrants, unlike Roman attempts to stop migration across its borders. Migratory tribes crossed the channel, but at no point was there really much attempt at forming a strong political polity. There was never any political unification to speak of on the island. For comparison, Japan unified by the 9th century. Meanwhile, across the English Channel, Britain's arch-rivals, the neighbours from hell, the French, were beginning, by the 10th and 11th centuries, to start to fill in much of its semi-autonomous princelets and duchies. And by the mid-14th century, France was in full unification drive. Many had thought over the centuries to try and unify the Britons, but the island was slower in unification. No amount of wars seemed to be able to conquer the Scots, even as the English became more and more powerful and wealthier compared to Scotland. Yet, around the early modern period, and what really began unifying the island was not war, but religion. Scotland became a Protestant country around the same time as England. Meanwhile, Scotland's old ally, the French, remained fixed to its Catholicism. So, Scotland became a Protestant country. And Protestant became an ever stronger pull for Scotland towards England and away from Catholic France. Then, when Elizabeth I died, it turned out the natural heir to England was also the King of Scotland. The Tudor regime passed from history, as the Scottish Stuarts unified the crown in 1603. Two massive pieces of historical luck that suddenly bound the island together in cultural, religious and political importance, without the need for an adversarial war. So what of the island? For the island of Great Britain itself is worth talking about. In my opinion, it's a fairly unique island, as much a mini-continent in the same way as Japan or the Indian subcontinent as it is a mere region of Europe. Like Russia with an internal struggle of whether it is a Western or Asiatic power, Britain too has had a constant internal dialogue over whether it's really European or something unique in and of itself. The British archipelago, including Ireland, is far different from the continent. The islands for a start are incredibly geologically diverse. Almost everything you need for a modern world economy – oil, coal, gas, marble, tin, copper, lithium and huge fisheries. Not to mention the plenty of other resources found on the island. So, unlike much of Northern Europe, which is found on the Northern European plain of flat land and rich agriculture, Britain has a little bit of everything. 
Despite not quite being on the European agricultural plane, the British Islands are a great agricultural source, with warm heat and natural minerals coming from the Gulf Stream to provide rich and plentiful agricultural land, making British farming highly productive. Furthermore, British fishing waters have long been some of the most abundant in the world. Just ask yourself why fisheries became such an important part of the EU withdrawal debate. Further too, the English Channel is just about big enough to provide easy transport to the continent, but far enough away to make invading difficult, giving a natural internal stability and protection from the threat of outside invasion. In short, the British islands are naturally wealthy and fairly safe, with not just lots of diverse materials, but some of the highest quality materials found in Europe too. The islands, in short, are the most diverse geological area of Western Europe, giving Britain a historic wealth noted by foreigners to the island. Julius Caesar recognised the tin mines of Cornwall as one of the most valuable places in the known world, and had too perhaps heard the stories of the fertility and the productive nature of the agricultural sector, which, even by Caesar's time, was starting to produce the seeds of a market economy around Kent, which was acting something like a maritime kingdom. Caesar later found much gold in Wales and silver mines dotted across the country. The Romans, therefore, invaded and conquered England. England and Britain didn't have the centralised political power of, say, the Germanic hordes, making it capable of a brutal war against the Romans that it might have taken to repel Rome. So Britain fell under Roman control, unlike the Germans in the Teutoburg Forest, where Germany almost permanently secured independence against Roman rule. The Romans didn't really annex England in the way we're familiar with, but it merely attempted to control the market economy and to Romanize the elites of the country. Whilst on the islands, the Romans discovered the natural abundance in materials that allowed a degree of self-sufficiency to avoid long supply lines and help to enforce Roman rule. It also precipitated the breaking out of a market economy on the island. Roman rule later waned, as despite the relatively strong rule on the island, the empire needed to move its troops elsewhere. When the Romans left, the people on the island didn't establish a strong centralised rule, instead breaking down into a feudalism that slowly looked to be gaining centralisation if it wasn't for those pesky Europeans getting involved and causing trouble. In 793 AD, men from the Norse, we now call Vikings or Norsemen, raided the holiest place in the Northumbrian kingdom, Lindisfarne. A rich and peaceful place, the attack on the Christian way of life by pagans from the north marked the start of a centuries-long battle with these new invaders. Primarily, they wanted to loot, plunder and settle the wealthy islands to escape the overflowing Scandinavia. 
where populations had begun to outgrow the natural resources of the fairly barren landscape. The Viking chiefs needed more resources for their peoples, and so they plundered repeatedly the wealthiest place they could find, Britain. They quickly saw the advantages of the market economy they found, and in places like York were as much traders as they were genocidal tyrants. Even the most brutish can see the advantages of the great wealth available in commerce and trade, and the benefits of this peaceful and wealthy life over that of constant looting, plunder and murder. William the Bastard, himself part Norseman, was the man to put an end to the Viking Age. He too wanted a piece of the market economy on the island. He saw the dynastic troubles of England, with its part Celtic, Anglo-Saxon, Danish, and, as he saw it, Norman heritage. The weaknesses of the institutions, after centuries of Viking warfare and settlement, had weakened the island. But the wealth of the island was still there, and it was too much for him to resist. He invaded and claimed sovereignty over the peoples and over the land, introducing a feudal style that clashed with much of the freedoms of the common law that was before. A debate that's still there, the primacy of statute over common law, and which is more important, is still a legacy of William's rule today. The economy under Norman rule boomed enough to pacify the population into accepting the rule of William. The booming market economy was helped in part by Jewish financiers who could provide high-quality financial skills to aid the development of a modern market economy. The financial skills of pre-Norman English to that of the great medieval powers like Venice or Genoa showed that England was still centuries behind in this regard. The city of London became the centre of these new skills, with its already well-established free market economy and diverse population, with all sorts of different nationalities trying to establish trade on the Thames. The island continued to boom economically long after 1066. Silver mines from across the Norman realm, from Derbyshire, Cumberland, Somerset, North Wales, Flintshire, Hookdale and Englefield provided new sources of silver, which in turn increased the silver coinage that could mint a powerful and strong new currency. A pound of silver became one pound sterling. England had a coinage good enough to compete with the great maritime trading powers of the Mediterranean. England boomed. The growth suffered under the Black Death, though this was somewhat reinvigorated by the population cull as the Black Death led to the end of normal feudalism, and England carried on its economic rise, the pace of which even increased as serfdom ended. These overall trends may not have been noticed by many of the people of the day, in how much better off they were becoming than previous generations. But it was just a start. England was slowly going through the gears. England's lower population following the plague meant food was plentiful and living was cheap. In this flourishing free market economy, 
that resulted in newfound freedoms, you needed materials and skills to flourish. The materials had always been there, and these had led to high skill levels in England. As England became more and more of a market economy, these skills moved from, say, archery to woodworking and then new industrial skills. As skills became less needed for a war state and more applicable in a free market economy. Much of English wealth had been built around exporting these raw materials to Europe in the late Norman period. But this slowly developed into a trend of developing the raw materials at home, as an ever-increasing knowledge of industrial and manufacturing processes seeped into the country, something only hypercharged by the printing press, which allowed knowledge to spread ever quicker. English skills became almost entirely free market oriented, rather than simply skills for warfare or agriculture. Skills led to new jobs and industries like shipbuilding, which also led to a strong merchant shipping fleet. Mining production went up, and rather than being exported, the materials began to be developed at home into iron and then further into tools or building materials. The cloth trade grew and grew, and nudged along a slow and inefficient British textile industry into competing with the Belgians and the French. If we were to compare Britain to France in the early modern period, we would notice a stark difference. France supported a huge population of agricultural labourers. Its huge population, the largest in Western Europe, was much more reliant on England for farming. This gave the French a capability to put out a huge army, but it never let them develop skills at home that could push it into the next level of economic advancement. The Tudor period in England saw much largesse from Henry, but a flourishing economy under Elizabeth sowed the seeds of later empire, as England found its place in a world economy. Britain's increasing domination over the Atlantic trade and the success of its more free and economically prosperous colonies meant that during the 17th century, Britain boomed. The British revolutions and political struggles over the course of the 17th century to an outsider made it look like a nation in trouble. But it was never threatened from abroad. And these early civil wars actually helped the island develop a stronger political system, which over the centuries would prove itself capable of stopping the political turbulence that engulfed the continent at various times over the coming centuries. The resultant civil war, the result of a parliamentary revolution, gave Britain what it had lacked over the previous centuries. Strong and clear political centralisation allowing firstly England to become a genuine European power, and giving it an ability to fight off any threats from the continent. The market economy was never really tampered with during this period, and the parliamentary revolutions today are something of a footnote compared to the huge growth in industry, trade and wealth in Britain during the later period. By 1720, 
and Daniel Defoe describe the English as the most, quote, diligent nation in the world, vast trade, rich manufacturers, mighty wealth, universal correspondence, and happy success have been constant companions of England, and given us the title of an industrious peoples, close quotes. Britain's trading wealth was not new. Other countries across Europe had gotten to about where Britain was. Venice and Genoa, and some German states, were increasingly wealthy following the boom of the Baltic and North Trade Sea. But then something very remarkable happened in Britain that occurred and had never occurred anywhere else. Britain's economy didn't plateau and result in a war for more territory to keep economic growth growing, as had happened throughout much of the rest of the world. Britain instead developed new technologies that had never existed elsewhere to allow it to grow internally. Britain never looked to expand by building an empire of neighbours and imposing its will on, say, France or Spain. By the start of the 18th century and the Act of Union, 1707, most of the populace were content with the market economy in Britain. Why? Well, the economy was booming, and new technologies like the steam engine were about to take advantage of new energy sources to power what we now call industrialization, a process that would provide far more wealth and opportunity than even the greatest riches the new world had to offer. Part 2. Epistemological Content In this quick mini-section, I just want to talk about how I'm going to approach this episode. Of course, most of this podcast series is a mix of technological histories with a bit of analysis thrown in. Occasionally, we do social history or add in a bit of political economy. Well, this episode, like the episode on the United States, is going to be a bit of history, but a history of the political economy of the island of Great Britain, which resulted later in the union of the island and then the archipelago. So, if you haven't worked it out by now, I'm of course English. So how should an Englishman approach the subject of talking about England and Britain? And how should I talk about it as an invention? I could go through decade after decade of history, from the Act of Union to the modern day, but you could just read a history book for that. Podcasting allows you to do what you want. So, in the spirit of E.P. Thompson's work in the 1960s, who said that the natural Englishman's intellectual strengths were Protestantism, the natural sciences, and political economy, I'm going to approach this episode as a piece of political economy. The viewing of the country we call the United Kingdom is a construct, and the nation is usually seen in political economic terms. Judging the relative success of the United Kingdom is done in political economy, and this is how most voters judge the success of the country at every single election. There are comparatively, or there have been, few culture wars or genuine wars on British soil to worry about. Therefore, elections are won mostly on the prospects of the economy, 
not on nationalism. In the papers and on TV, every day, the ordinary Brit is bombarded with the state of the economy. The obsession with houses on every daytime TV show and its importance to the economy is near ubiquitous. There is a deep romanticisation and interest in the political economy in Britain, and this is natural. Britain educates its political leaders at Oxbridge in politics, philosophy and economics. Essentially, Britain trains its leaders in political economy. Much of the Brexit debate, apart from the strange people obsessed with race and Little Englanders, was focused on the issue of political economics and how well Britain would do in or outside the European Union. Britain, it has been said, has never produced a great intellectual of the Goethe, Leonardo or Voltaire type. But Britain has never needed this type of intellectual. Much of the moral work in Britain has been done by the Anglican Church, which over time essentially made itself redundant by the promotion of Anglican utilitarianism, later taken up by Bentham Mill and becoming the closest thing to a moral compass that the political elite had. Meanwhile, British natural sciences from Darwin, Maxwell, Faraday, Turing, Hawking and of course the daddy of them all, Newton, led the way in the natural sciences. And when Newton was not dabbling in the occult or wasting his time discovering modern physics and inventing gravity, he was something of a political economist. It was Newton as master of the Royal Mint who moved Britain from the silver to the gold standard. Political economy in Britain is vital to the national mood and spirit. All countries are run by the idealisation of their national spirit. The United States looks towards businessmen and the military to run their country. The French want a philosopher king, with an emphasis on the philosopher. And then, of course, they end up with Sarkozy, Hollande and Macron. Meanwhile, the British want a country run by political economists. And to a large extent, Britain is run by political economists. The civil service, the treasury and most senior politicians aim to run the country in a quote-unquote sensible way and not in some great overarching philosophical manner. This approach has been led. This approach has been helped by Britain having a long line of the world's greatest political economists. Adam Smith, David Ricardo, John Maynard Keynes, Arthur Pigau, David Hume and Robert Malthus were so influential as political economists that many of them could be seen as influential as many of the great contemporary politicians of the day. So judging this in this tradition, we will be approaching the subject and invention of the United Kingdom as a piece of political economy, looking how it changed the world, and then how the world changed Britain, and then how the future might look. Politically, I think this episode is somewhere between proto-Marxist and old-fashioned Whig. Marx was of course right about many of the problems of capitalism, and how capitalism easily morphs into corporatism. But of course he was wrong in almost every single way with the solutions to his problems. 
He never emphasised a Whig view of the world, a freedom which results in wealth. Marx viewed the collective as more important than the individual, while the Whig tradition in Britain was far more dominant, promoting the individual over the state. Whiggism somewhat is unfashionable now, with the rise of wokeism, which is essentially dressed-up Marxism. Whigs often viewed the Industrial Revolution as a process of British institutions rising and rising and promoting a stable form of life which helped foster innovation. This is very unpopular, but I think it must be beyond doubt that the nature of the British state and the various British political institutions must have played a part in the rise of the Industrial Revolution. Britain's move towards the first industrial market economy was because of a mix of these types of political paradigms resulting in a paradigm shift in how we view technology, which, put together, caused a rapid advancement. I would never claim industrialisation was solely down to British exceptionalism, but there must be something said for the Whig point of view. After all, we only have one independent case of industrialisation in the world. There was no competing industrialising power in East Asia or South America. Even today, parliamentary supremacy, the rule of law and common law are still relatively unique amongst countries the world over. Those that have inherited these precepts, such as former British colonies, have tended to do a lot better than those who haven't. Nobody will ever be able to run a randomised control trial to see how British institutions impacted the Industrial Revolution. But I cannot believe they played no part at all. So what other reasons are we going to claim for the uniqueness of the Industrial Revolution in Britain? Well, Britain, in hindsight, was a very convenient place for an Industrial Revolution. Its highly productive and responsive agricultural sector its abundant and accessible supplies of materials, and its foreign trade that, sustained by the Royal Navy, led to feedback effects of state investment in naval power, leading to more investment into innovation and high-quality skills. The Industrial Revolution was the key for Britain's greatness, and the key for its listing as a great invention. How Britain pushed the world forward technologically in this period is highlighted by the list of inventions on this podcast in which Brits or Britain plays a crucial role in developing most inventions. And if it's not Britain taking the lead, it tends to be the United States. Again, a British invention. So, the next part of this podcast will look at the pre-industrial history of the island of Britain and how the foundations of its institutions were developed. Then we will look at the formation of the political entity first called the Kingdom of Great Britain, and then the United Kingdom, before we finally get onto the industrialisation of the island itself. Part 3 pre-industrial history of the island of Britain. So, we've gone over some of the history of the island in the introduction, but now it's time for the pre-industrial history of the island, 
before everything changed. British history is probably one of the best known in the world. Most people seem to have been taught something about British history, whether it's Henry VIII, or the wars, or the Battle of Hastings, or the Romans, or the Celts, or industrialisation itself. Yet nobody, even those in Britain, know much about the process of political unification. The result of the political innovation called, firstly, the Kingdom of Great Britain, and then the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, was a clear and radical benefit for at least Scotland, England and Wales. Wales was not a kingdom but a principality, hence there being a prince and princess of Wales, because of a series of laws enacted between 1535 and 1542, annexing Wales into England. But the full union of the entire island of Great Britain in 1707 meant that for the first time in its history, the largest island off the western edge of Europe was unified with no internal enemies. With a huge moat around its territory, the island was almost uninvadable. Unification of Britain's natural borders happened 100 years before the French, during the Napoleonic era, began to get concerned with its own natural borders of the Rhine, the Alps, the Pyrenees and the Atlantic. Yet Great Britain had already secured its natural borders and was unleashing a century of outward exploration. The Union of 1707 was a meeting of two peoples, the English and the Scots. The result was that the English Empire became the British Empire, but really could be called the Anglo-Scottish Empire. The population of the two countries were much more equal than today. At unification in 1707, it saw England at around 5 million people, and Scotland at 2 million people, making it a far more equal union than we think of today. The island of Britain was also demographically small compared to its bitterest rival, France, meaning England needed all the internal security it could get. This was especially problematic, as Scotland's long-time antipathy towards the English had seen it become a near-permanent ally to the French in a relationship historians call the Old Alliance. But things changed following the union of the crowns in 1603, meaning England and Scotland were ruled by the same man. This permanently allied Scotland more towards England than anything else, and away from the French. England and Scotland had been growing closer due to increased intermarriage between nobles, aristocracy, and the royal families of Scotland and England. But it was the Protestantism sweeping the entire island over that of the Catholic aristocrats in France that truly allied the normal English and Scottish person. This new deal for the island was only made permanent with the Union of 1707 that formalised and recognised a new political entity that cemented Scotland and England together away from France. England was always to be the primus inter pares, first amongst equals, of the Union 
due to its greater wealth. But the bold political experimental union was seen as the best way to unify an island that had for centuries and millennia been attempted through conflict and violence. It was a more elegant and peaceful solution than annexation. The union of the island would result in an outward-looking country with few domestic disputes. The island would be governed through parliamentary supremacy, with a bold Dutch-inspired capitalist free market, where the primary focus of the nation was not religion or kings and queens, but a capitalism regulated by this parliament. The parliament dared not tamper too much in the market economy, through fear of aggravating everybody from the banking to the merchant classes, to the labourers and a new class of industrialists who were increasingly powerful across the land. The Union changed the nature of the island, like no military project before. There were unique benefits to this arrangement. Scotland and England before 1707 had different histories, languages, education systems, military systems and cultures. But in coming together, they provided each with mutually needed skills and opportunities. Scots could now move across the island with their greater education and increasing anglicisation. Meanwhile, English capital could be poured into Scottish towns, which benefited new and growing areas like Glasgow as it sprung up on the side of the Clyde River. But it was perhaps the north of England that benefited most from this exchange, as a mix of Scottish technical skills and education helped to power the northern factory workers who were changing the nature of the British economy. The United Kingdom may have been built around the supposedly more civilised English model, but the Scots were vital for keeping it in check. The merchant democracy that had been built in England was imported into Scotland. Scots now have free access to English colonies for exports, meaning British wealth also became more geographically diverse. Aristocrats were spread across the island, meaning there were large capital reserves in local areas to build local projects and local infrastructure. Compare this to France, where Paris and nearby Versailles, which is where the great court at the hands of Louis XIV was located, meant there was a centralisation of aristocrats. Britain's more diverse holdings of wealth meant there became internal competition amongst the aristocrats to get the most out of their land, meaning they were receptive to new technologies and new industries that could provide them an edge. This focus on economics, therefore, that followed political unification saw the development of the natural wealth of the island. The natural wealth led to a population able to develop new skills. The increasing military power before, but accelerating during and after the Union, saw Britain in constant wars to try and maintain a balance of power in Europe, and trying to stop the French getting too powerful. These were wars fought by Parliament, not the monarch. The British nation saw its new supremacy assured during the Spanish War of Succession, when John Churchill 
the first Duke of Marlborough, was instrumental in cementing the new country of Great Britain's role as a great power of Europe by preventing Bourbon domination of Europe. Britain fought an economic war to stop Bourbon succession in Spain, and its financial power meant it could fight on land and at sea against any European hegemon. In a strange irony of history, John Churchill's victory can be seen as a nice starting point in Britain's role as a great power which would lead to its domination of the world. His victories as Allied commander, most famously at Blenheim, forced Bavaria out of an alliance with France and forced it to ally with Austria. Meanwhile, an Anglo-Dutch force captured Gibraltar, the key to the Mediterranean, which of course Britain still holds. The French attempts at controlling Spain was looking shaky, and despite a huge French army, Britain managed to win battle after battle on land and at sea to stop the French momentum. Marlborough's early victories during the war meant France never really had any momentum to keep the Spanish Netherlands or Spain. Poor harvests on the continent and Britain's naval victories eventually ground down the Bourbon monarchy. After nearly ten years of warfare, the Bourbon Philip won the throne, but had to renounce his claim to the French throne and Gibraltar, meaning there would never be a union of the crowns of France and Spain, like there had been 100 years ago on the British Isles. The War of Spanish Succession showed that for the first time, this new Britain was a continental-level player. A small population and a small army, but highly skilled, with the best technology money could buy and an immensely powerful navy. It demonstrated the power of Britain's pre-industrialising society during this war. Yet cast your minds 200 years forward, and Winston Churchill, descendant of John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, found himself in a similar situation. This time fighting with the French against the Germans in trying to maintain British hegemon over Europe, and ensuring no state was too powerful, powerful enough to invade Britain. What the 20th century showed, in comparison to the 18th century, was what the cost of Britain falling behind in technological developments to Germany meant. It allowed the German state to catch up and in some areas overtake Britain, eventually leading to a threat of British sovereignty. Winston Churchill may have won the war, but it cost Britain its superpower status, a status it gained from John Churchill's victories. What the Spanish War of Succession showed was what the far superior British fiscal military complex could do, in allowing Britain to fight across the world and being able to fight the war against Bourbon succession to the Spanish throne on every front. The only European country able to do so. The newly established Bank of England enabled the English to get far more capital than its European counterparts, who were relying more on the Crown's purse. The Bank of England largely funded Britain's fighting of the war, with the Bank knowing a successful British victory was the best way to get a return on its loan. The result of the war 
was numerous for the new kingdom of Great Britain. Firstly, the Duke of Marlborough was granted a palace, the grandest non-royal palace in England, at what was called Blenheim, named after the location of his greatest victory. The House of Spencer, which the Duke belonged to, remains one of the most preeminent non-royal families in Britain. The 20th century saw two of the most famous Brits coming from this family, the House of Spencer. Winston Spencer Churchill and Diana Spencer. In the Peace of Utrecht, at the end of the war, Britain forced Spain to cede the territory of Gibraltar. Britain established a naval dominance across Europe, but left France as the primary land army of Europe. The Dutch, the primary capitalist rival to Britain, were nearly bankrupt by the war, while the German states of Bavaria and Prussia began to challenge Austria for power in the Holy Roman Empire. The rise of Britain over the 18th century led from this war, through various technological developments and a move to a bimetallic currency standard, numerous military victories over continental rivals, the expansion of the empire and the industrialization starting in the 1760s is all a bit too big and complex to go into right now. But we will look at bits of them in the later episode. But for now, we actually have to find out how the Kingdom of Great Britain and then the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland was formed. So now we are going to deal with the process of the unification of the island and then the temporary unification of the British Isles. Part 4 Laws in Wales Act 1535-1542, Act of Union 1707 and 1800, and the Irish Free State Constitution Act 1922. Quote, the Englishman has long been used to living in a certain haze as to what his country, whether England, England and Wales, or Great Britain, or the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, or the United Kingdom plus its dependent territories, or that large unit which he used to call the British Empire. Close quotes. Sir Dennis Robertson, 1953. As this quote suggests, trying to define this invention isn't too easy. The United Kingdom it's lots of things to lots of different people. But in principle, it's the equal coming together of the peoples of Scotland and England and Northern Ireland and Wales. In reality, however, it sees Wales as more of a principality of England and Ireland as a mere territory of the Crown. Scotland legally is an equal partner to England, with it granted the status of kingdom. But in reality, England is by far the most powerful, due to its wealth and much larger population. Unlike the American Constitution, that gives legal equality to all the states, equal representation in the Senate, and a degree of self-governance of the states, all of which is well known in the United States through the teaching of the founding of the nation, 
and these legal documents. The Acts of Union, however, grants almost no power to anything other than Parliament, and it, unlike the American founding documents, is hardly remembered today in Britain. The Union was not really born of any great love of the English and the Scots, but born of practicality and obedience towards common sense. It was the ability to weigh up the costs of a loss of sovereignty, but the greater riches that would come if the process of unification went through. It gave everybody in Britain a focus on shared prosperity and security in being united on the same island. The expansion of English power across its own sphere of influence and natural borders was little different to the French wars of conquest in its own interior, yet the French's conquests were far more brutal. And we could do some small comparisons of how the Parisian elite completed the same process as the English elite. At the same time, Great Britain was aiming to integrate Ireland peacefully into the Union. The wars in the Vendée in France, with its Protestant population and revolutions against Parisian control, was a far more brutal process than the English attempting to unify Ireland into its polity. Ireland, of course, had a Catholic population rebelling against Protestant British control. Almost the same scenario switched. The war in the Vendée from 1793 to 1796 was as, if not a more brutal civil war, than any British activity in Ireland. England was economically growing in the run-up to 1707, but Scotland was a different story. It was broke after misadventures in Central America, meaning the Scottish people were increasingly poor and reliant on English loans. It was this spur, as much as anything else, that gave rise to the Union. So in this section, we're going to look separately at how the Celtic regions of the British archipelago came to be in a union with the more mongrel nation of England, and then how Ireland left the Union, leaving a very strange political situation on the British archipelago. Part 4a. Scotland. Scotland's entry into the Union is a story of how, in effect, a backwater, but a proud one, on the island of Great Britain became one of the most civilised, well-respected and intellectual places on the planet.
looking through Thank <laughs> you. 